Um, 
situation where Cyrus is obliged to enslave and and uh, a tremendous amount of wealth was passed on and has been inherited uh, primarily by whites. We have a situation where black Americans are on the Tungai line in the race, and the whites are on the Mangai line. And how do you like that? And I'll give you one more example. Uh, since we're all lawyers, a lot of us are lawyers. We have something in law called remedy. It's uh, it's really making, it's really punishing someone or rewarding someone in an equal fashion, basically. And I know we have a lot of a lot of subscribers who are not lawyers, but look at it like this: different remedies have to be applied to different wrongs. If a person is driving down the freeway at 90 miles per hour and the cop sees him and gives him a ticket, he's going to pay a fine in California of about $1,000. So that's the remedy for driving 100 miles per hour on the freeway. But if he goes out and, and murders someone, he's going to be sentenced to the penitentiary for the rest of his life. So different remedies apply to different people and to, and to different situations. So we can't uh, we can't talk about okay everybody has everybody has diversity and inclusion now. That's not equality and that's not certainly not equity. So I wanted to mention that and give that analogy because I think it makes a lot of sense. And with that, uh, we'll start. Tom, are you ready with your slide? Yes, I'm ready. Okay, well, why don't you take it away with your slide? And by the right. way, by the way, we're going to have questions at the end of the program. Okay, let me. Okay, um, yeah, thank you so much. I would like to thank you, Dr. Lenton Akins and the Beverly Hills Bar Association for inviting me to give a presentation on reparations for the descendants of American slaves. Um, what I would like to do is first give a personal motivation and an introduction, um, then talk about U.S. slavery reparations proposals throughout history um, and precedents for slavery reparations. And I should warn you, those are all in the wrong direction towards slave owners rather than the enslaved. Um, and then I'll, I'll show how I went about estimating U.S. slavery reparations just to get a, a ballpark figure. Um, as for my motivation, um, as was already mentioned, that I'm originally from Germany. I was born in post-World War II Germany, raised in Tübingen, which is a beautiful city or town. Um, but in high school, I learned about the Holocaust in every single school subject and felt ashamed of uh, my history and always had the wish to express to a Holocaust survivor how ashamed I felt. And then, of course, I, I never thought this would ever happen. But then one day I met Mietzsche Langer, um, a survivor of five concentration camps and a death march in his youth. And in his retirement, he relocated from Israel of all places to Germany. And he treated me like a son. I, I couldn't believe it. So um, our two families went on a spiritual journey to Poland, to the concentration camp memorial sites where he lost his entire family. Here's a picture at the Kwajow concentration camp memorial site um, Major with his grandson David, um, and 
I was always wondering how was Mietro ever able to regain trust in Germans or in Germany as a country after the suffering that he went through as a young man. And of course, I don't want to take anything away from Mietro's incredible humanity, uh, but I think what I'm going to show you next probably didn't hurt. And that was the fact that Mietro received a reparations pension from the 1970s all the way uh, until he unfortunately passed away in 2015 from the West German government first and then from the government of reunited Germany, worth about $2,000 per month in 2018 dollars. Now that's not much, it's clearly not enough in any way, it's merely a symbolic gesture. Um, so that's what I'm thinking about reparations, it can't undo the damage, but it can make words of apology more meaningful. And um, then of course there are differences uh, with the example of Holocaust reparations and uh, proposed slavery reparations. In Germany's example, the perpetrators and some of the victims were still alive when reparations were negotiated in 1952. But what about slavery reparations in the United States? Senator, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell opposes paying reparations, saying none of us currently living are responsible for slavery. Not entirely true. As the federal government that allowed slavery to exist is still living. It ended, this, uh, it ended um, slavery through a civil war with great expense in blood and treasure, but it did not provide reparations to the enslaved, so it ended the injustice, but that's different from actually paying reparations to the enslaved. And we all have a responsibility in it, I feel, um, including myself as a recent uh, immigrant to this country, because we all at least indirectly benefit from the startup capital that slavery provided to the US economy. And we're attracted to this country because of its strong economy. Now let me talk about a number of slavery reparations proposals throughout history. The earliest example that I could find was George Washington, here pictured with his slave Billy Lee that accompanied him throughout the Revolutionary War. Lee was freed by Washington's will along with all the slaves that Washington held in his own name. And he wrote in his will, it is my will and desire that all the slaves which I hold in my own right shall receive their freedom, seeing that a regular and permanent fund be established for their support, as so long as there are subjects requiring it. George Washington's will was widely circulated in the newspapers of the day to set an example for the voluntary abolition of slavery. Now that was a naive idea, it obviously didn't happen. But what's unique about this example is that Washington thought about establishing a fund for the enslaved rather than for the enslavers, as all other abolition proposals at the time thought to give reparations to the slave owners for the loss of their property rather than to the enslaved. Um, another example is the notion of 40 acres and a mule, which goes back to General Sherman's Field Order Number 15 of 1865 whereby 40-acre parcels of land were distributed to 40,000 freedmen and women until President Andrew Johnson returned the land to the former slave owners. Representative Tadeo Stevens um, uh, introduced a reparations bill calling for 40 acres and a mule, but it fa failed in 1866 and 1867, but the notion of 40 acres and a mule stuck around. And these proposals inspired land-based land reparations demands that echoed through the next century. For example, Sojourner Truth in, eight, in the 1870s called for land-based reparations. Uh, Queen Mother Moore in the 20th century called for land 
Dempsey Travis in 1970 uh, called for a new Homestead Act that would accomplish this. And most recently, William Darity and Kirsten Mullen in their uh, 2020 book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, also use land-based reparations as one way of calculating reparations. I'll get back to that in a minute. There were other reparations proposals throughout this century. Uh, Kelly House uh, in the late 19th century uh, recommended uh, pensions to former, formerly enslaved. Um, she went to prison <laughs> for her efforts. Um, Marcus Garvey called for European reparations for colonial depredations in Africa. James Foreman in 1969 called for cash reparations from um, from faith groups that benefited from slavery, and he was able to collect some. And then economist Robert S. Brown demanded in 1974 a, size, a transfer of a sizable chunk of America's wealth to the black community. Now, in 1988, President Ronald Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act, um, which provided $20,000 per survivor to Japanese-American World War II internees accompanied by a letter of apology from the U.S. president. And this motivated John Conyers to introduce House Bill HR 40 for the first time, I think, in 1989. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, and uh, basically, the, and it's currently introduced by Representative Sheila Jackson Lee. The bill itself does not provide for reparations, but for the formation of a commission to study and develop reparations proposals for African Americans. Um, in 1990, economist Richard F. America published the book The Wealth of Races, which is an edited volume where economists um, used a price-based estimation method to, uh, based on historical um, slave prices to estimate um, what, uh, what the slave owners gained from slavery. Um, I'll refer back to that in a second as well. In 2014, the issue of slavery reparations went mainstream, and this is largely thanks to Ta-Nehisi Coates' article, The Case for Reparations in the Atlantic. And with that, I'm turning to precedents for slavery reparations. Um, the most egregious case is the Haitian independence debt, so-called. Um, here is a picture of Toussaint Louverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines, the leaders of the Haitian Revolution of 1791 to 1804. They were able to permanently abolish slavery in first Saint-Domingue, and then they founded the Independent Republic of Haiti. Um, and in 1825, King Charles X of France sends a fleet demanding an indemnity from Haiti for the former owners. So these owners that had fled to France were supposed to get reparations from the former slaves. And Haiti, in order to maintain its independence, had to agree to this devilish deal. And um, the crippling Haitian independence debt was financed through loans in, with French banks. And these were serviced from 1825 to 1947 over a period of 122 years. The, the, the um, original claimants weren't even alive at the time. This was all to descendants. Often it said we can't pay reparations because it's too difficult to trace. The French government did a great job tracing these individual claimants through the generations. The other example is uh, reparations to British slave owners in 1833. The British government abolished slavery, took up loans, and paid reparations to slave owners. He serviced those loans 
for 182 years, from 1833 all the way to 2015, it literally just got done paying that off. So it settled generations of British with a debt for slavery. In the United States, too, we have an example in the, in the District of Columbia. In 1862, the U.S. government abolished slavery in Washington, D.C., providing $300 in reparations per enslaved to slave owners. Reparations for about 3,000 formerly enslaved were paid out at the height of the Civil War, when every penny counted for the preservation of the Union. Um, now, with that, I'm going to uh, talk about ways how U.S. slavery reparations can be estimated this time for the descendants of the actually enslaved, not, not the enslavers. Uh, there's a formula that Professor Swinton published in, uh, the, uh, in uh, Richard F. America's edited volume, The Wealth of Races, in 1990, where he provides formulae how, um, how different historical injustices can be accounted for in an additive way uh, counting lost income, lost freedom, lost opportunities to uh, accumulate capital, as well as pain and suffering for colonial slavery, then slavery during the United States, and then for discrimination after slavery. Um, I'm going to present only one of those boxes, and that's lost income due to U.S. slavery. I'm not going to talk about colonial slavery, not about post-slavery discrimination, not because I don't find it important, Actually, I do, but because I don't have the data necessary to do those estimations. So there's a lot of work that still needs to be done to get the total loss that African-Americans suffered from these injustices. I'm only focusing on one single element, but it's already whopping enough. Um, there are three approaches to estimating U.S. slavery reparations. As I already mentioned, land-based, price-based, and I use a wage-based method. The land-based method uses the current value of 40 acres in a mule. The price-based method takes the expected return from owning a slave. My critique is that this only counts for the 12 hour daylight hours during the day that uh, the enslaved were working in the fields for cash crop production. Anything else was a cost factor to the enslavers. That's why I use a wage-based method where I'm arguing that the enslaved lost control over all 24 hours of the day and would have to be compensated at the hourly wage in the free labor market at the time. Um, so the land-based method, I, I, I calculated all of those in 2018 dollars to make them comparable. The land-based method uh, produced an estimate of $2.978 trillion uh, based on Darity's work. Price-based method, $13.2 trillion in 2018 dollars based on Marchetti, also in the wealth of races. Um, and the wage-based method that I published in 2015 would, in 2018 dollars, be $18.6 trillion. Those are whopping amounts, but I want to show you how I arrived at this estimate. And basically, it's, it's fairly simple. Um, you need the number of enslaved people in every year from 1776 to 1860, and I use U.S. Census information to get estimates. And then um, historical unskilled wages from 1776 to 1860. I'm ignoring centuries of colonial slavery and the years from 1861 to 1865, as the number of enslaved remaining is difficult to estimate. So it's overall, it's a conservative estimate. Here are 
are the U.S. census figures about the population of the enslaved in every decade from 1790 to 1860. And what I do to get the annual estimates is I use um, linear interpolation for the years in between censuses, and I'm using linear extrapolation for the year 1776 to 1789. Other methods could be used, but this is a fairly simple way. And then I have the production work, uh, production workers hourly compensation in nominal dollars for the year 1790 to 1860. And you see that in um, 1790, the wage was only two cents and it didn't rise much <laughs> by 1860. So those are extremely puny amounts, again, uh, arriving at a conservative estimate. Here's an excerpt of my Excel spreadsheet in the first column, I have the year. Then I have the number of the enslaved, italics if it's estimated, bold print if it's measured. And for wage as well, italics if estimated and bold print if measured. And then the hours per year, that's the number of enslaved times all the days in the year times all the hours in the day. Um, and that multiplied with the wage gives the annual total. And that is then uh, accumulated up and compounded with only 3% interest. And this goes at the bottom of the page till 1794, but I continue this process until 1860. And from then on, I use this formula to compound it up to 2018, again at 3%, which barely makes up for inflation. I arrive at a total amount in 2018 dollars of $18.58 trillion. For comparison's sake, the uh, U.S. GDP in 2018 was $20.89 trillion. So it's roughly one year worth of the U.S. GDP, conservatively estimated. Taking an interest rate of 6%, uh, that's the interest rate Georgetown University used in its sales contract when it sold two, 272 slaves in 1838 to save the institution from financial ruin. Um, if I use that percentage, 6%, the debt balloons to $6.2 quadrillion. So, so what I take from this calculation is the interest rate will be the single most important number in any negotiations between the African-American descendants of the enslaved and the U.S. federal government. So in conclusion, um, the goal of reparations to African-American descendants of the enslaved is, in my view, at a minimum, closing the per capita black-white wealth gap, which was estimated in 2018 to amount to about $352,000 per African-American descendants of the enslaved. Um, the wage-based reparations at only 3% interest would close that comfortably. Um, other amounts are still outstanding and they are additive according to Swinton's formula, so there is more research to be done, more negotiations to be had. Portion of the losses to be compensated should be negotiated between the federal government and the descendant community. The same, in my view, goes for the modalities. Should it be cash? Should it be trust funds? Should it be pensions, health accounts, educational funds? Also, between the, um, the federal government and the descendant community. I would like to say one thing, though, about cash reparations. I, I did some public opinion research and found that cash reparations are the least popular modality of reparations. Other modalities, however, require administration by well-meaning black or white administrators, and thus they, in 
in my view, they carry the risk of paternalistic racism. Cash payments avoid this risk. Historic decision-making to the rightful heirs of the enslaved. Thank you very much for your attention, and I'm ending the share here. Okay, then, Sharice, uh, uh, are you ready for your presentation? I am ready. Okay, well, go ahead. Um, thank you for having me today. Um, I just want to say I do not have slides, so um, I'm going to talk, and hopefully only for about 10 minutes, because I would actually like to leave the rest um, for questions. Um, so how did we get here? Or I should say, how did I get here? Um, talking about reparations. My grandmother was a Mississippian through and through. Fannie Lou Hamer was one of her sheroes, and so were the slate of black politicians who were elected out of Mississippi post-emancipation. She made sure I knew who all these black heroes were. Fast forward, at 16, my church held a powernomics workshop by Dr. Claude Anderson, and I'll talk about him at the end. I listened to Dr. Anderson lecture about black labor and white wealth and the need for reparations for black people descended from slavery. Um, from there, I was hooked. Um, at Cal, my minor was African American studies, and more recently, I got involved with some grassroots movements that had to deal with reparations, a black agenda for the DNC, um, and AB 3121. Hopefully, we can talk about that as well, because I know Biden has um, the Lift Every Voice plan that he put out this year. Uh, so there's always this question of why should black people get reparations? Who should be entitled to reparations? Why reparations? And I'm going to try to answer all of these questions. And for the lawyers in the room, I'm going to Iraq my presentation. And I hope I make my 1L towards Professor Proud. So the issue here, whether descendants of American slavery are legally entitled to reparations. Rule. The U.S. government has a history and of paying and supporting reparations to those who are victims of racial injustices or paying it to their living descendants. First, Indian Claims Commission was created, also the Bureau of Indian Affairs, to redress indigenous peoples who were and were not alive when the heinous acts occurred against them. Next, we have Civil Liberties Act of 1988. We talked about that earlier, a United States federal law that granted reparations to Japanese Americans who had been interned by the U.S. government during World War II. Also, the State Department has paid or approved 90 claims for a total of $11 million in reparations for France and former World War II prisoners who were carried to Nazi death camps in French trains. The first French reparations paid to Holocaust survivors living in the United States. The payments apply to Holocaust survivors who were deported from France to concentration camps on stifling trains operated by the state-owned French railway, or if the survivors had died to their spouses and their heirs. The Clinton administration appointed as special representatives of the president and secretary of state on Holocaust-era issues, who successfully negotiated major agreements with the Swiss, Germans, Austrian, and French, and other European countries covering restitution of property, payment for slave and forced labors, laborers, recover of looted art, bank accounts, and payment of insurance policies. Does this sound familiar? Um, the U.S. to elusive Alaska, the Japanese weren't the only 
displaced during World War II. While it was fighting against the Japanese, the U.S. occupied islands of Kiska and Utu and Alaskan Aleutian chain and deported 881 Aleuts to camp in Juneau, Alaska. In 1988, about 450 living survivors of the camp were awarded $12,000 each. Um, city of Chicago to victims of police torture in 2015. Um, the city acknowledged that more than 100 black prisoners had been subject to torture by the police, which pushed some to confess to crimes they had not committed. Florida to their survivors of the Rosewood Massacre in 1994, the state of Florida issued $2.1 million in compensation split amongst the massacre survivors. North Carolina to eugenics victims. In 2013, North Carolina became the first state to pay reparations to victims um, of forced sterilization and eugenics programs through a $10 million agreement. Um, also, in 2015, Virginia started a compensation program for victims of eugenics sterilization. The U.S. to victims of the Tuskegee experiment settling for $10 million worth of reparations for the survivors of the study, their widows, and their offspring. In 1995, they also were given a guarantee of free lifetime medical care for the victims, their children, and spouses. That was also added to the reparations sum. Finally, the rule of law that I'm applying is basic principles of contract law, equity, and justice. Application. The U.S. government was complicit in allowing slavery. In fact, many elected politicians engaged in the slave trade, slavery ownership, and sexual assault of human chattels, and benefited from the institution of slavery, it, and we became the great and prosperous country that we see today because of slave labor. And so far, African Americans and descendants of slavery have not received restitution. I'm going to go through a couple of examples. Slave labor built the White House. Slave labor built Washington, D.C. Slave labor built all of the plantation homes you see across the South. Slave labor has, um, so, excuse me, was the beginning of the black and white racial wealth gap in this country. The Fugitive Slave Act was passed. Prior to the Civil War, Lincoln offered the rebel states a compromise. If you free your human shadow, we will pay you for the loss. The rebel states decided that they would rather go to war. Further, some of those who engaged in the practice of owning human chattel were paid for the loss of their free slaves by the federal government. The federal government did not enforce laws that were required um, for Confederate and rebel states to re-enter the Union post-emancipation according to the Compromise. Um, also, General Sherman's Field Order Number 15, where we get the term 40 acres and a mule. However, after Lincoln was assassinated and Andrew Johnson became president, he did not honor General Sherman's field order when he assumed office. He vetoed it. Andrew Johnson stopped payment of 40 acres and a mule to the Ford formerly enslaved. He also suggested that black people immigrate. How about that? Um, Johnson was a former slave owner himself, and that's possibly why he um, took this stance. Um, we have a history of race riots in the U.S. The race riots have different disenfranchised black wealth and possessions, land, businesses of black families. There was little or no restitution for many of these violent acts. Forcing black families to sell valuable land for little of nothing due to violence, eminent domain to take property.
property from black families. And in Southern California, we have the examples of Bruce's Beach and Manhattan Beach and the Inkwell Santa Monica. And I don't think many people know about the Inkwell, um, but we did have an Inkwell here in Santa Monica. And um, now that, that does not exist. Um, lynching, redlining, the New Deal, the Supreme Court decision in Plessy versus Ferguson, which said separate but equal is the law. And even though this was legal, we all know that separate but legal was a farce. <coughs> Excuse me. And what could the formerly enslaved do after emancipation? For the most part, many families uh, became sharecroppers because they needed food and shelter. My own family, I, came, I come from a sharecropping family. Um, or they lived on the land left by a former master or family members, white or otherwise. Um, even though the Freedmen's Bureau was established, the Freedmen's Saving and Loan Bank was pilfered by white executives. Um, presidential and con congressional, excuse me, inaction when race riots occurred. Um, and with every race riot, every single race riot that has been documented in the U.S., more black people were killed than white people. And the government did not take action. Um, federally sanctioned redlining, again with the New Deal, the Federal Housing Authority mandated segregation and discrimination in the housing market. Now, what was this all about? At the end of the day, it was about money. White people, white Americans became rich off the blacks of black people, and so did this country. Free labor, free sexual relations, free possessions, free land, free money. The U.S. government has breached its contract with the descendants of slavery. Forty acres and a mule, we, don't we never had that. And by allowing terrorism, violence, and discrimination of black people without intervening, I could go on. And here is my conclusion. It was clear that the United States profited off of slavery and the institution of white we were once one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Our GDP and per capita per citizen rivals that of first world nations. But of this wealth, prosperity, and opportunity was because of hundreds of years of free labor from its human chattel. The U.S. owes a debt to the descendants of slavery, and that is what reparations is about. Even if we start with simply the breach of 40 acres in a mule. Um, also, sharecropping in states that allowed or enforced heinous institutions of sharecropping um, acted as de facto slavery. We also had chain gangs that were allowed and further racism in the judicial system. Those who can trace their lineage back to an ancestor who was living during this time are entitled to reparations. Um, and when I say this time, I mean during slavery. Even if a person cannot explicitly trace their lineage back to slavery, if they can trace it back to a time where black codes were enforced, and I'm uh, equating the black codes with de facto slavery, then they should be entitled to reparations. Um, you know, and to elaborate, black codes included forced apprenticeship, corporal punishment, and denial of the right to testify. Um, and some people may ask, why should the U.S. government or the federal government pay reparations? And the simple answer is for deterrence. In the law, or 
jurisprudence holds that you can penalize bad actors so they would not commit the same wrongs again. The government has still allowed discrimination, racial prejudice, and a persistent racial wealth gap to last. Um, and finally, there there is a solution to this. Um, companies and businesses that have benefited from slavery, institutions that have benefited from slavery, such as Harvard and Georgetown, and federal and local governments need to create a pool of resources. Coin the reparations super fund. Cash, land, mutual bonds, etc., and establish a Bureau of ADOS Affairs. If you are not familiar with that term, ADOS, that is American Descendants of Slavery. Um, and this bureau sh should be similar to what we see with the Bureau of Indian, Indian Affairs, excuse me, that will administer payments from this reparation super fund to those who can certify that they are descendants of American slavery and have identified as black on the last two census records. And if you go to ADOS101.com, some of that information is there. Um, and then I'm going to give you suggested readings. Um, because there's a lot of valuable information out there um, and that, that this is information that is available to everyone, but it may help clarify some questions or concerns that people might have about uh, reparations payments and who should get it. The first is going to be Black Labor, um, White Wealth by Dr. Claude Anderson. Um, this is the first recommendation. This is an excellent book. The next one is From Here to Equality by Dr. Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullen. This book is excellent. It's very thorough. Um, it's probably the most thorough book I've read of all books on African-American history. And it really helps to connect the dots and really um, make the case for why reparations for descendants of slavery. The final book is um, The Case for Black Reparations by Boris Bicker. Um, this book is pretty old. It's been out there for a while. Um, and actually, uh, is told from a legal standpoint, but really focuses on people who were in the segregated school system in the U.S. and why they should be entitled to reparations. So those are the three um, readings that I would highly encourage you to seek out. And um, hopefully we are able to answer any questions that you may have, um, because my presentation, my part is done. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, I just had like to have a couple comments. Um, Tom, I know that you only have uh, conducted uh, research and, and uh, have your, your, uh, your suggestion from uh, the time we became a nation in 
Thomas Jefferson, when he signed that declaration, he um, owned uh, almost 200 slaves, I believe. And I know he owned uh, 16,000 acres of land. So he came into the, into the Union with a tremendous amount of wealth, and so did a lot of other people. So if there's a, an argument, after you get your data together, colonial period, these people amassed, the uh, slaveholders amassed tremendous wealth prior to the Union. Uh, and uh, they didn't just come in, as we say in political science, tabula rasa, you know, they came in with uh, a tremendous amount of wealth. Uh, I believe about 13 of them were major slaveholders, but I googled it and Google, I don't know whether this is true or not, it says 41 people, 41 of the representatives who signed out of 56 uh, to the uh, Declaration of Independence were slaveholders. So anyway, I wanted to mention that. Another thing I wanted to mention also was um, the fact that I'm, I'm new to this research. I've read a few books and written one that she cited. But what bothers me, or what kind of uh, sets me off, Every, there's always this argument against uh, reparations for uh, black Americans. But, you know, there's the same argument goes to go for other folks. It, it really comes to black Americans that uh, we should, the United States government should pay. But the United States government has paid reparations to a lot of folks. And it's in some of my materials, so I wanted to I wanted to, to just mention that, and uh, there was um, I took notes of, and this is very informative. Informative. Um, there was um, a point that I wanted to make. I uh, I don't have uh, a math background. As a matter of fact, I only finished eighth grade. My parents died when I was very. eighth grade, but I don't have a lot of calculation. I don't have a lot of algebraic formulas in my head, and I can't do a lot of stuff. But there's a, a famous bank robber by the name of Willis Sutton. And Willis Sutton uh, was asked in his old age by a reporter, Sir, why did you rob banks? And he said, well, that's where the money is. Uh, and I, I have adopted that philosophy. And you know, I'm not very math inclined, but I did look at 246 years of slavery. And I, the Japanese were paid uh, $20,000 each for a three, and they were in, they were in concentration, uh, not concentration, but relocation camps for three years. And if you, and if you divide three years into uh, 246, get 82. So I, I multiplied $20,000 by 80, times 82 years, and I came up with, I think, $6.5 trillion. So, you know, it's, it's like, and there's another one, uh, the uh, Occam's Razor. Uh, I, I'm sure you're aware of that, Tom, the Occam's Razor. Uh, 
emphasis should not be multiplied beyond uh, uh, essential. Uh, and I've uh, applied those uh, formulas in, in my life, and I found that they're very helpful. And if you really just look at what has gone on with slavery, uh, it, just common sense would tell you that there's a tremendous amount of wealth owed to uh, black Americans, uh, descendants of slaves, and not all black Americans, but descendants of slaves. Because I also looked at the statistics, and I'll make this point, and we'll go ahead with the questioning. I looked at the statistics uh, last night, and when, um, we, you know, African Africans uh, of, of black people to this country did not really immigrate until after the um, uh, the, the, the law was passed for, to open up immigration for other people rather than uh, except Europeans in 1965. In 1965, there were 8,200,000 uh, born born in this country. And of that, only 32,800 were Africans. So when, you talk, when Cherise talks about descendants of slaves,
question here. I support reparations for descendants of the American slavery. However, I do wonder how much of the ta taxpayer's money should go to that. Do you think that the banks and insurance companies that finance and insure the slave trade should pay the bulk of the reparations to black Americans? My, I'm going to ask Tom to answer that, but my immediate answer is absolutely not. I think this is a government responsibility. And, uh, you know, if the government wants to go after the uh, companies for some share, that's up to them. But this was the American government that imposed this. The insurance companies did not have the power to do that. Tom? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's the federal government that allowed slavery to exist. The fact that companies invested in that form of then legal um, investment opportunity um, is, you know, they, they didn't necessarily break the law. But um, I do think they have a moral responsibility. So I think the idea, um, you know, other reparations cases can provide um, ideas. For example, in Germany, a, um, a, a collaboration between the government and industries that had benefited from forced labor during World War II was formed where these companies that profited uh, from slave labor um, paid into a common fund and the government paid into it too and that was used to pay reparations to survivors. So something similar could be could be done in the United States as well. Okay, I, I, I just wanna I'm sorry, I just want to chime in really quickly. Um, I don't I don't necessarily agree. I think um, I, I mentioned the reparations super fund. I'm of the mind that um, you know if individual states are going to be paying for reparations or contributing toward reparations, um, there needs to be one pool, similar to what you're talking about, Dr. Kramer, um, for everyone who benefited from slavery, so we're not getting piecemeal payouts. So if California decides that they want to make payments or they, they're requiring insurance companies to pay out, we have banks and companies that benefited from slavery, they're going to pay out, and the federal government is too. That can all be put in one pool because there's going to have to be a decision with AB 3121. If there's a payout, who's entitled and how long will you have to be in California before you receive benefits if there are cash payouts. And that's going to get messy. So it could be um, a situation where your, your uh, how much did you benefit or contribute to slavery can be quantified, and that's how much you will contribute to the pot because it's going to, it's going to cut out a lot of uh, okay. Okay. We, have another, we have another one here. There are many African-Americans in the U.S. today who cannot trace their lineage back to slavery. Why should they be? disadvantaged in receiving reparations. I, uh, Carol, uh, Sherry, you can answer that quickly if you can, but I, I just want to add that's the, the very reason why I put, I put those numbers out there as of 1965, there were only 32,800 uh, uh, Africans of descent uh, in this country who were not descendants of African so uh, that is uh, not a difficult question to answer at all. Sharice, do you have any quick comments? Make them short. we got about a couple minutes. Yeah, if your family immigrated to the U.S. after the 1965 Immigration Act, you are not entitled to reparations. That's what the Black Agenda is for, and that's a totally separate discussion. Sorry for interrupting. Also, just keep in mind, please keep in mind that we have uh, questions in the Q&A section, and if necessary, we can go over time. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, Tom, do you, uh, did you find any questions? Uh, I, I, 
Yeah, there is one question in the uh, Q&A um, that I could address. Why should people today who were not slave owners pay money to people who were not slaves? Why should people who came to the USA after slavery pay reparations? I try to address this in my presentation uh, because I myself came to the United States after slavery and I'm, I'm a, a naturalized citizen. And with this citizenship, I embrace um, the country. I was actually very proud of becoming a citizen for the very positive contributions that this country has made to, to democracy and so on. Um, so I'm proud of that. Um, but having grown up in Germany, I'm also used to identifying not only with the positive sides, but also with the negative sides of my citizenship. And with my American citizenship, I feel the same way. If I celebrate the positive accomplishments, then I also must acknowledge the negative contributions, and that is slavery. It's an open debt. It was never repaid. Um, intergenerational wealth is missing on, Afri on the African-American side exclusively, um, and it needs to be transferred. And since this was a government issue, we all are responsible, and that includes African-Americans living today. We are all responsible for what the government did, but the, uh, the reparations should go to the descendants of uh, those people who were enslaved. There's a question in the chat. Um, so someone asked, I'm in favor of measures to close the racial wealth gap and in favor of the concept of reparations. However, I'm concerned about paying reparations to black families who can trace their lineage to slave while excluding families that cannot trace their lineage, even though they have been impacted by redlining and other discriminatory measures. So um, as far as equity goes, again, um, if we go back to um, people who are enslaved here in the U.S., the debt owes the U.S. to those families. The U.S. owes a debt to those families. We're talking about people who came here more recently. Again, if you go to ados101.com, there is a black agenda that um, elaborates on black Americans who have been discriminated against and the measures that can be taken by uh, local and federal government to address those other racial issues. So reparations is separate from a black agenda, which might seek to uh, redress uh, discrimination in America. Um, let's see. We have something here, a comment from... Chairman of the um, uh, mediation panel here in Beverly Hills. Let's see if I can pull it up. I saw his package. Okay. Glenn says the same is true of shareholders of corporations who are assessed penalties. Current shareholders may be new but still end up paying through reduction of share value and penalties. Okay, that was a comment. Uh, anybody else? Uh, do you see any uh, questions? Um, yeah, I'm not the only one to do this here, so please chime in. We have a few more minutes. 